Well, let's start with a little bit about your story before the children and before them. So I started when, I suppose my biggest break was when I was 22 and I did Casualty. So I went into that series for three years, I think it was, which was brilliant. And it was an amazing job to do profile-wise. And also it was a great training ground for me because I hadn't done telly before. And I was there for three years and it just felt the right time to move on. So I, I decided to leave and I told our producers a year before, I said, I want this to be my last year, which is quite a brave thing to do to put yourself out of work. But I was, I was like 25 and I was like, you know, I didn't become an actor to sit in one job for the rest of my life. And I was very lucky. I had a really good exit story and I auditioned. Even yeah. though you were on primetime television, you still had, you still thought there's more. Probably now in hindsight, you don't appreciate it at the time. You just go, oh yeah, it's just work because mm. you're so in it and there's mm. no time to reflect back on it and to see what your achievements are. You're just in it and you're doing it. Mm-hmm. And I had a ball. I absolutely loved it. And what did you do next? The ripe so old from age of that 25? at ripe old age of twenty-five, I went and auditioned for what was then going to be a pilot called Waking the Dead. I went and auditioned for it, and it was a brilliant story. And at the end of the pilot, um, the character I was reading for gets killed by a serial killer. I was like, "Oh yeah, this is juicy. This is what I want to do." So we did it, and by the time they cast it, when they got all the cast together. The exec producer at the time, Mal Young, said, it's just too brilliant a cast, we can't kill you off. And I think only then did they think, actually, this could go to series. So they wanted to keep the five of us together. So they rewrote the ending that my character didn't die. And so I then went on to Waking the Dead for four years. So, I mean, What sort of hours were you doing? Crazy hours, crazy hours. You were always in makeup for seven. So depending on where you were filming... You might be picked up at 5.30, 6 o'clock. You would film until 7 o'clock in the evening. But, you know, I, were, I suppose I was young and you just had the energy for that. Yeah. And again, they were really... It, it was everything I wanted to do. I, I really had become an actress because I loved Prime Suspect. I loved mm-hmm. Helen Mirren. I thought it was mm-hmm. the most fantastic female role model. I just thought it was iconic and I was like, that is what I want to do. So for me, Waking the Dead was sort of my prime suspect. I was like, this is this is what I wanted to do. And I had a brilliant time doing it, but it just became longer and longer. So we started off filming, we would film, I think, five months a year, and then each year BBC would want more. So they'd go, actually, can we have another four episodes? Can we have another six episodes? And so towards the end, I was filming nine, ten months of a year, which is quite a long time to, to retain those hours, yeah. And you don't have holidays. You don't, you don't, not no. like normal people, you don't, no. they don't say, oh, you can all have two weeks off in the summer. You don't, you just keep going. And you've got to remember all the scripts. So you've got to do when all the you're scripts. off camera, you're yeah. probably... So as soon as you finish work, I would quite often go home and then I would literally have dinner and look at my lines for the next day. So you never really switch off. But then for me, it really got to the point where I was like, okay, I, I was starting to feel less challenged. My mm. character wasn't getting written for. And uh, so it just became incredibly frustrating for me, mm. you know, to open scripts and go, oh, I've got four lines in mm. this episode. And you go, this is not what this I'm here for. It, this yeah. isn't challenging. This is The money was amazing. And you kind of go, 
and I bought a flat in London and it was brilliant and I was like gosh you know I am so lucky that I've been able to do this mm. but I was like but my life isn't about money I don't want it it's about fulfillment and it wasn't fulfilling me they all had children I was the only one who didn't have children so I had no dependence so mm. I felt justified in putting myself out of work because I was like mm. I'm not responsible for anyone mm. other than myself mm. so I can do that mm-hmm. and you know Will I know had kids and he was like I'm the breadwinner mm. and he stayed Less for 10 choice. years I don't think he really had a, had a choice and now as a mum at 43 I get that I mm. totally get that if I ended up in a series mm. I would struggle because I would be I would feel obligated partly financially because we've got kids so I can understand people's choices and it changes well you effectively had two jobs for your for a decade really didn't yes. you between casualty and waking the dead casualty waking the dead so 22 to 29 and I had a fallow period of about a year where I didn't work and I was like oh my god what have I done was it nerve-wracking it was I mean to start with it was all right I was very lucky financially I was secure so I was like okay this isn't terrible but it was very frustrating, frustrating. really frustrating. You weren't doing what you and loved. so I kind of went off and I, can't, I went to a life coach at this point in my life because I was mm-hmm. like, there's got to be more to life than this, mm. than just work. And, and she was brilliant at challenging what I wanted to do. So I then went off and ran the New York Marathon. I, I wanted to run a marathon, I wanted to buy a house and I wanted to meet someone who I could potentially marry and have kids. And in those six months, I did all three. Nice. <laughs> and that was through, I think, the life coach, because you become very focused. How did the life coach get you to see things differently? I think it was such a simple thing. It was a pie chart. Mm. And she said, I want you to draw a pie chart for me. And she said, and I want you to divide it up into sections, big ones, small ones, whatever you think, of what is in your life. Mm-hmm. where it is at the moment so for me at that point work was a massive pie chart mm. you know family was a small bit friends was a small bit hobbies was a small bit and she went mm. right now looking at that what do you want how do you want to change cut it up and it was only really through her challenging me that I suddenly thought oh I, I really want to see my friends more and I want to mm. spend more time with my family and and I want more challenges in my life I've always been someone who wants I'm very goal orientated, mm. which is why things like marathons and things like that work for me. Because I'm not really someone who wants to just go to the gym. But if I've got something to work towards, work towards. That, that works for me. Yeah. So it was really helpful seeing it on paper. And then it came about just literally, she was like, what sort of things would you always like to do? I said, well, really interested in interior design. I'd love to do my own house. I'd love to do... This, I really want to have children at some point, so I want to meet someone. And it was fascinating. So when I wanted to buy a house, she was like, well, what steps do you need to do in order to do that? Mm. And so you break it down into sort of almost times of how long something would take you to do. So I'd be like, well, I need to phone estate agents and register with them. How long would that take me? Probably 20 minutes. So then you start writing it. So then in the day when you're faced, sometimes if I was at work or something and I'm like, Oh, I've got a scene off, I've got half an hour. I would just get out my list and go, what can I do what that's 30 minutes? My, yeah, towards sudden, my goals. Yeah, and suddenly things start to happen. I love that. Because we 
I think that we, the more intentional we can be about things, the more we unconsciously almost move towards them. Yes. And what I love about the life coach is that she gave you practical steps to yeah. make those things, which may have felt quite lofty and unachievable. Oh, yeah, they did. She brought them back to, yeah. this is what I can do in a half-hour chunk today to influence yeah. that outcome. And then you feel more in control. And yes, let's face it, we all love to feel yeah, in control. A little bit in control. <laughs> it's a, a little bit of a hackneyed term that that the process is almost more important than the outcome. You had a really lovely process to yeah, get that's true. to those outcomes. Yeah, I'm a huge believer in fate, and maybe I have to be because of my work, <laughs> that you, have, you learn to let things go. When a job doesn't go your way, you have to believe that it's because something else is coming. Otherwise, you'd go insane. Mm. Um, so I am a big believer in fate, and I think there were just reasons why... Just was it? I was shoehorning. I think you can try and shoehorn things and really force things, and they just don't. It's not the right time, and your energy's not quite right, and it's just not going to fit. And that's just exhausting. Yeah, and it's not gonna. It's not going to be enjoyable, and it's probably not going to be a good outcome. Certainly, when I was younger, I just chose to work. So when a job came up, I'd be like, "Yes, I'll do it." It's different now with kids because Mm, there's other factors, um, many other factors. I was working up until that point. I had a, a really quiet year, the year we got married. And this is why I say I'm a great believer in fate. Although it was quite stressful, financially it was like, Christ, we've got this wedding to pay for and I'm not working. Mm. But actually it allowed me to enjoy the planning and I'm a big mm. planner, I love mm. all those sorts. Of, and I loved all of that and I spent a lot of time with my mum and doing all those things and it was just, you know, a once-in-a-lifetime experience. So actually maybe it was good I wasn't working. Mm-hmm. And we enjoyed that, and we went away on honeymoon, and we came back, and then I went into, um, I went and spoke with the producers of the bill, and they offered me a part in that, and I was like, because the year before had been quite, really quiet, I was like, I need to work. I was like, yeah, great, thank you very much, I'll do it. Mm. So I was with them for eight months, and then I fell pregnant. <laughs> so that was that was amazing. And I'm really lucky because... Did you work through your pregnancy? Yes, but you see, I was lucky because it was effectively... I was an employee, I wasn't self-employed because it was through a company. So I was paid maternity leave. When any other acting job, you would not get this. But because they were their own company, you are effectively an employee. And also really lucky to film through... You know, because I didn't want to stop working. I felt really great, really well... Mm didn't show until I was sort of five six months mm-hmm. and then you know Amelia came along and that that changed everything as mm. it as it does um mm. probably in more ways than one that she she was a baby that never slept it was a very painful period a very difficult period so what I suppose we had anticipated as being a joyful lovely bonding happy time was incredibly difficult Same. Very, yeah. very difficult. And not quite in, the utopia that you... Not at all, no. Not quite I mean, like we still, you know, within that, you still have beautiful moments where you adore them and love mm. them, but you are just so tired. It's like being permanently jet-lagged. Did you work between the two girls? Yes. So after we'd had Amelia, literally almost a year to the day, it was, it was incredible. A year to the day, I then... Did an episode of Hustle, which was great, and then I went straight on to a three-parter with John Sim and Jim Broadbent and Olivia Coleman, which was amazing, up in Manchester. So that was my first time away from Amelia. 
And, but bearing in mind she still wasn't sleeping at this How point. How did that feel, though? Did you feel like, it, I'm back, or were you just consumed with worry about what was going no, on? No, I really wasn't. Front? I was so ready to go back to work. Yeah. I, ju- I just was so tired, so mm. exhausted, so unfulfilled creatively, mm. could barely function. And yeah. actually, I just felt, I need some time out of this. I mm. need to recharge. And in a weird way... Most people say, you know, the hardest thing is being a parent. It is the most exhausting thing. Absolutely. And I used to find going to work was my holiday. (laughs) It was a break. Um, Because when you go to work as an actor, you get in in the morning, someone gets you breakfast, they get you a cup of tea, someone puts your makeup on, they do your hair. You get to sit in your trailer while knowing, you go, God, I could just have a nap now, (laughs) you know, like like half past nine in the morning. I think I'll just have a nap. You know, you just kind of go, I mean, it was just like a utopia. I was Mm. just like, this is heaven. But I think I coped with it also because I think the whole shoot was only six weeks and it was in Manchester, but I was up and down on the train. So I might be away for a couple of nights and then I'll be back and then I'll be away for three nights and then I'll be back. So it was probably quite a good introduction back into work because I think had it been a complete... rip you apart for six I think that would have been quite tricky and by chance Olivia Coleman who was on that job with me and we were chatting away and I was talking about the lack of sleep and she had two boys at the time and she said oh a friend of mine used this sleep special I was like Livy we've we've used so many sleeps I said oh apparently she was really good I said look I'll take anyone's number and I phoned this lady Andrea Grace and she was amazing and she came down and she spent an evening with us and she just instilled this confidence back in us and she came up with a schedule now we all love a schedule mm. and she was like this is what you need to do and she said and you call me three times a week and she supported us for a month and I'm not joking within two nights she was sleeping through but I think it's permission and I think yeah. it happens all the time with us as women that we don't give ourselves permission to do the things that we really know instinctively are right. right. Yeah. And so I just missed out on so yeah, much. I felt exactly. so isolated, exactly. so isolated. But then but you got back in the saddle. Got back into work, which was lovely. It was a massive boost for my confidence. It was like one of those jobs that everyone was fighting for. It was a really top job. And I was just like, yes, got it. Really enjoyed it. Had a great time on it. And I was really, really, really good friends with my agent. And um, as friends, he had sort of said... And at this point, I think, now Amelia was sleeping, we were going to try for another one. And uh, he, he was sort of saying, oh, you know, how's Amelia? Blah, blah. I was like, oh, she's great, she's sleeping, blah, blah, blah. He said, oh, do you think you'll have any more? And this was as a friend. And I went, yeah, we're gonna, we are going to try for another one. It'd be lovely to have another one. He was like, oh, that's lovely. Two weeks later, or however long it was, he emailed me saying, I can no longer represent you. (gasps) (laughs) No. At this point, I'd just had a miscarriage. So I was on the floor anyway. And then he just dumped this shit on me. And I was like, wait a minute, I've, I've been with you for 15 years. And it wasn't about him saying, I can't represent you, because I understood that he was winding down... He didn't want to represent a lot of clients, and that's fair enough. But I felt very manipulated, like he had tested to see... Because I'd had a year out with Amelia, 
he obviously thought if she's going to have more kids, she's going. I'm not going to get any money from her. But it was the fact that he emailed me. I was like, no, you don't do that to a mate. You know, the politeness of doing that. And so I was just on the floor, confidence-wise, because as I said, we just had a miscarriage. He just dumped me, and I was just like, right. And it was great, actually, in a way. I was just, fuck you. Yeah. I'm going to go and do this. And he was like, I'd really like you to stay within the agency. One of the other agents would love you. And I just thought, I'm not giving you another no. penny. Absolutely not. And I went, that's really sweet. I said, can I just have a bit of time to think about it? And they were like, yeah, yeah. Straight away, I went to other agents. <laughs> but do you know what? In a lot of ways, it was the biggest favour because I'd felt like we'd got stuck so I went and saw some agents, I got offers from two, and one of them I really loved, and it sounds probably very sexist, but I don't care, she was a woman, mm. she had two small children, mm. and she just mm. got it. Mm. And I adore her, she is so direct, but equally, whenever a job comes in, she's never assumed that I will do it, whereas my previous agent was always like, this has been offered to you, you know. Um, Aren't you lucky? Yeah, you need to do it. Whereas she was always like, I don't know if this is going to work for you because of the girls. I don't Mm -hmm. know whether you're going to be able to fit in. I always felt in control of making Mm -hmm. the decisions, which I never had done up until that point. Mm -hmm. So I went with her. We we lost another baby in the meantime. (laughs) So it was just like it was quite it was quite a weird time. But I had my agent, and she was brilliant. And then I fell pregnant again. And I'd said to Craig, you know, if if we lose this one, I just need a break. I can't. Mm-hmm. I felt like we'd spent a whole year mm-hmm. trying to get pregnant and lose it, and I was just mentally knackered. So I got to about ten weeks, and then I went up for a meeting for a series. Uh, I went up for the job, and I hadn't told my agent I was ten weeks pregnant because. Actually, legally, you don't have to. No, um, and also because we'd lost them, I thought I'm just not going to say anything because what's the point? And I got offered the job, and I thought, ooh. How and long the, was and it? the job was going to be about six months, and I thought, ooh, I'll be about nine months pregnant by the end of it. They might notice. Would you have a lot so, of um, at the end? My agent phoned me and she said, Great news, you've been off the job. I was like, That is brilliant. I'm so excited. I said, Now, I do just need to tell you something. And she was like, Okay. I was like, I'm, I'm 10 weeks pregnant. She was like, Right, okay. I was like, but I didn't tell you because of X, Y, and Z. And she said, well, actually, legally, we don't have to tell them now. She was just brilliant. She was like, don't worry about it. We don't have to tell them. She got it. But by the time the contracts were being drawn up and what have you, I was getting close to 12 weeks, and I'd had the scan, and it all looked good. And she said, we we need to tell them now. I was like, okay, that's fine. We hadn't signed contracts at that point. So she went and told them, and they went, okay, let, let us just think that one over, because obviously the character wasn't meant to be pregnant. Mm. They said, we'll get back to you. Well, it was radio silence for about a week, and even my agent said, this doesn't look good. I was like, but they can't retract an offer, now knowing I'm pregnant, that they can't. Anyway, it all was fine. It went ahead. They were brilliant. And again, I was just so lucky to be able to work through my pregnancy, because had it been two weeks later... I would have had to have disclosed that. Or if I'd been at a meeting four months pregnant and they'd seen, they can just say, oh, you're not right for the part, knowing full well you're pregnant. I love it. So Amelia was at home with Craig and I was back and forth on the train. 
felt quite nice because creatively I was being challenged. I felt like I wasn't being signed off because I'm pregnant and I can't work. And and financially, you know, the, the reality is in my job, I can do a shorter job than Craig and earn more money than him. So mm. whenever I, have, I was offered telly stuff, it made absolute sense that I took it. Mm. And if Craig was only in a short job or whatever he would normally stay and do the childcare. So we always kind of juggled it. We always spoke about it. And obviously if he was in a long job or a contracted, he couldn't. So we would, invariably my parents would come, but because it was quite broken up, it was like two days here, two days there. Mm. My parents could help out and it wasn't too much of a burden. I get a sense that you guys are incredibly disciplined about making choices that you then stick to because it must be so tempting as creatives to think oh I could just go and I'm sure I could wedge that project in yeah I'll be completely honest you know if the most amazing job comes along I will do it and work out the childcare Mm -hmm. but unless it's really amazing Mm. it's a case of is it financially viable if it's not I don't really want to put the kids with someone they don't really know. I mean, that's that's the problem that we've always had being fri- uh, freelance. In some ways, it's lovely because you get really quality time with the kids mm. and then you can go off and do your thing. But the downside to that is we've never had consistent childcare. Mm. Our problem is always the emotional thing of, you know, who do we leave them with and who are they happy with? Mm. And... You can't go off and work if you don't feel that isn't in place. You said something about, if I find a job I love, I will work out the childcare. When Evelyn was 15 months old, I went away on tour for four months. (laughs) Now, I I could only... It's like Queen Elizabeth. But it was because it was the most brilliant part. I was desperate to get back into theatre. I'd never, ever toured, Mm. and I really loved the idea of playing in all these different theatres, and it was a great part. And Craig was like, well... And it was good money, and he was like, well, I'll I'll stay with them. And so the fact that they were with him, Mm. I never worried. Mm. But, I mean, that was crazy. I saw the kids one day a week. You know, I mean, in a way, Evelyn probably wouldn't really have been aware, but I was aware that Mm. that was quite hard. And then again, when she was she two and a half when I went to Devon and I was doing coroner I was away for four months I mean I was back and forward at weekends Mm. but again the only way I could have done that job was that Cray stayed at home so we sacrificed finance for the children because he could go off and do a job and then we spend some of that money on childcare but actually Mm. Craig's always wanted to be around and he's wanted to be with the kids and he quite enjoys that routine amazing and then you've had the anchor haven't you so even when you were down doing the award-winning coroner in devon love your timing because it was through the summer and Mm. i understand you were filming right on the coast that was beautiful and they offered you the entire wardrobe at the end right yes (laughs) (laughs) oh the perks the perks the Um, perks of the job but but the point is that, okay, you went with the girls every night, mm. but they knew when they were going to see it. So there was this anchor yes. each week. And yes, I think it probably was, yeah. That's what I've seen with my own children, and you will know my dilemmas with childcare. With the best yeah. will in the world to have a reliable, steady yes. 
source of care that just hasn't worked out for one reason or another and that's been really difficult because um, the children haven't had the stability that I would have liked Mm. but it was the my choice was to go out and be and have that other part of me fulfilled you have to I think you do in order to be I know for myself in order to be a happy present yeah uh, interactive mum mm. I need to go and work and have my space I am someone who who's always been very happy in my own company anyway mm. I need my space and I find my space in work weirdly and then you are more capable of coming home throwing your bag down yes. jumping on the rug yeah whereas if you're at home worrying about childcare and making everything perfect and then not getting out to have the other side yes. of you fulfilled the children just get the best of you. Absolutely. It might be. And also, you know, on a, on, a, on a much bigger level, I have two girls. I want them to see what I get out mm. of work. I want them to see the love I have for the job I do and how fulfilling that can be and what that, what that gives me and for them to then aspire to do something that really fulfills them and that it's okay we are a working mother's generation, whereas our parents weren't. My mum certainly wasn't. She stayed at home and raised us. You know, it, it will be the norm for our children to see that actually both parents were. I mean, we won't know what effect that has till they all grew up and then they might revert back to our, our parents and go, well, no, I'm staying at home because I hated it when my mum went yeah. to work. You don't know. Yeah. But you have to be true to yourself and live, live the life that's going to make you happy, otherwise you will... You, you know, my mum always used to say that because I'd be like, oh, you know, we were going to go to LA when I was pregnant with Amelia. And I just thought, I was like, I can't do this to my parents. My mum has waited so long for a grandchild. and But she was like, but you have to live your life. You can't live it around us. But we chose to stay in the end for us. We were like, actually, no, we want to be around with them. And we want them to have that experience. And that, again, was more important to us than than living in another country. It was it was our girls experiencing their grandparents and forming a relationship and how important that is. Everything's choice, isn't it? There's all yeah. there's always compromise, there's always a, a something that you have to give up. Mm. I've got a final question for you about how you handle the rejection of audition. Do you know what? It's funny. Um, Has it got easier? No, it's got harder. <laughs> it's got harder. I think in my twenties I was probably far more resilient because also you've just got all that time ahead of you yeah so the feels like there's so many more opportunities anyway Mm -hmm. and actually I mean what I have learned is the older you get that it becomes so much more than being the best actor for that part it then you learn it becomes about but they're casting your sister, they're casting your mum, and they've already cast them, and you don't look like them. Or you're too tall for the guy we want to cast as your husband. It does get harder because I, f- I feel, you know, and it's, it's the reality of turning 40 is the opportunities become less. They mm. do become less. That's mm. just the way it is. So when you go for a meeting, it's even harder when you don't get it because you're like, I don't know when the next chance is mm-hmm. going to be. But what was brilliant is... I went up for something a couple of weeks ago and I was like, it's, it's not the biggest part, but it's a really nice part and I know I can do it. But sometimes auditions just don't go your way. You just don't hit it for whatever reason. Everybody has bad days. The, the frustrating thing with us is you normally only have two minutes. You don't get 
other days to make up for it. You have that two minutes and that's it. And I just got myself in a different mental state and I read something that a casting director had written about preparing yourself for meetings and all of, all of the usual things I do. But the key thing that she said that I went into that meeting with, when you go into a meeting, remember you've already won it. The fact you're in the meeting, you are good enough. It's not about your acting. You've already Brilliant. passed that. And I just went in there with a different confidence and I thought, oh yeah. And I just kind of relaxed and, and got that job. Now, whether it was to do with that or not, but it was a great lesson to me about getting yourself in the right mindset for it. And you are leaving an imprint, aren't you? Every time you do these yeah. auditions, as you said, the casting director now has you on their radar yes. for another opportunity. Hopefully, yeah. And I've always felt that I've never beaten myself up. There's, there's been millions of jobs that I haven't got. But my mantra has always been, so long as I leave feeling I've done the best I can, I can't do more than that. No. And I'm either right for it or I'm not. So I'm kind of cool with it. So long as mm. I feel I leave and I go, yeah, I couldn't have done that any better. And then if I don't get it, it's it's out of my hands. It's the times where you walk away going, Ugh, I know I could, and I just wasn't present and I didn't feel connected and all of these things. But it's gone and you have to let it go. Mm. There is nothing move I can do about it. You've just got to move on. Yeah. And then all the, all the really juicy character roles that we see. Mm. Okay, I know they're fewer and further between, but... Yeah. The, they're ahead of you, right? Yeah. If you look I at... hope so. I do feel there's a change. There's definitely a change, I think, with the whole Me Too um, and Time's Up campaign. And I'm also involved in um, a campaign called ERA, which is Equal Representation for Actresses. And what we're fighting for is not about actresses per se. It's about equality across the board yeah. in our industry. The statistics that they've done in terms of the ratio of men to women on screen, it's two to one every time, which doesn't surprise me. But what did surprise me, in children's television, the ratio is even worse. It's four men to one woman. And you kind of go, as girls watching that, what are they being yeah. taught? That Absolutely. they're a minority, that they're not as important. And interestingly, when they were doing all the research across it, they, they found that all the kind of sort of key jobs in the programs that they were doing like teachers and they were all men yeah so it was all men in authority so it's not even inspiring girls to become something professional it was it was really sh and I just I felt a massive responsibility when I left there I thought even if it doesn't change for me and for my generation I now feel a huge responsibility for my girls that it changes and that they are given. And it's like, it's not even, you know, people go, oh, I bet men feel really threatened at the moment. I'm like, but they shouldn't be. We're not, we're not asking to reverse that ratio. We're not asking for there to be more women than men. We're just asking for it to be the same. Yeah, exactly. And that is the same in terms of, they were saying, in female directors and even in terms of background artists that you have, like supporting artists in, in crowd scenes, that they should be diverse, that they should have disabilities within there, they should have ethnic backgrounds, they, you know, it should be across the board. Mm -hmm. And only when we start seeing that will that become the norm. So actually, in a way, I think it's quite an exciting 
time for women. I completely women. agree with you. I don't think that it could possibly stay the same when we look at what's happened, not just in the film industry, but in government, yeah. in our charities. There's too much of a groundswell now for things to stay the same. Yes. Um, and Frances McDormand's speech yeah. was just epic, wasn't it? Yeah. And for you as an actress, it must have really resonated even more than it would for me just as a woman. Yeah. But I think also it's given, it's definitely given me a confidence to be heard, which is really interesting. Loads of actors write. I don't write, it's not really my thing. But recently I got really frustrated with the lack of work and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to come up with some ideas because I now know enough people. I realised a lot of my friends in the industry are my mates. Why wouldn't I turn to them for advice or help or brainstorming and started creating a drama. And I feel confident about it only because I'm centering it around women and I think this is what people are going to want to see. They're going to now be like... Even producers who want to make money, they're going to be going, we need to ride this wave and be really on trend, even if it's just to be seen like that. I think they're going to now start going, right, let's commission stories about women. Yes. So I feel now like now is the time to go, I've got this great story about women, it's about this, about this and this. I do feel like women are going to be heard more. Well, I heard the CEO of the National Theatre talking last week and she was saying that the preeminent um, writers like David Hare yeah. have been typically relied on to come up with their content yeah. so he will do a take on a Chekhov play and yeah. that's what will feature at the, the National yeah. Theatre. Now they're becoming aware in their commissioning that they have to get women writing Brilliant. and they have to get the minorities yes. writing so it should be a really exciting time to see some fresh stuff yeah coming up coming up and it's exactly the same that they were saying at um, the era launch that there's not enough women writers there's not enough not that there aren't there are there were loads they're just not being seen and you know when when producers and exec producers are challenged on that and they're saying why aren't you using more female? They're like, well, we can't find them. And they're like, bullshit. Yeah. They are here. Yeah. <laughs> you're just choosing not to see them. You're, you're just choosing, filtering them out. You're just choosing to choose that, that sort of top bracket, the people you know. And I've sort of made a promise to myself that with the project I'm trying to, if, if I can get it seen, but that I will choose to find a female writer. You're whether you want to be or not, a figurehead for so many yeah, so it's really female funny actresses when, behind yeah, you. When we were talking about that, I hadn't really sort of seen it that way. But as I said to you, I forget what my age is. I still feel like I'm a 20-year-old just starting out in the business, so my opinion's not important. I shouldn't offer my opinion on things. And um, recently I was just shooting uh, Lucky Man with Jimmy Nesbitt. And invariably, when I've been a guest artist, you sort of go in... And just, I'm such a yes person. The director will go, I'd like you to do this. And I'll go, yeah, yeah, great. And I won't change any of the lines. And I'll just, and I just, I don't know where it came from, but we, we were trying to block this scene. So basically, Jimmy and I were running these lines. The director was there. And it didn't make sense. Something towards it didn't make sense. And I just said, well, what if you just sit there and I come and whisper it to you and then I leave, so you stay, so it stays with you. And they were like, oh, it's brilliant, it's brilliant. 
So let's just get this straight. You're telling James Nesbitt, Nesbitt how and to the act and how to hold Not it. how to act, but I, I was suggesting how we might, you know, lay out the scene. I say something quite nasty to him. I'm not going to stay there. I'm going to say it and go. And, and the director's like, oh, yeah, that's great. Yeah, we're, we'll do this. And it happened quite a lot. And I just, when I got home, I was like, God, was I really outspoken? I wonder if this, this is how people, actors, end up directing because I think I could do a much better job of yeah. this than the people who are telling me yeah. what to do all day but it's really it's a really fine line I sort of my reputation as I know it is that I'm a nice person to work with and so the difficulty is then that you end up becoming quite submissive because you go I want people to think I'm not tricky and you wonder you think are people going to see me as being quite brutal and tricky and hopefully not because I think there's a way you can conduct yourself um, I'm about to start shooting a thing on ITV and again it's only a small part but the makeup designer emailed me and just said oh you know any makeup you can can't have any thoughts on the look of the piece and normally I'm like no it's fine whatever and I just let them do whatever they do mm. and I was like no I just want her to be a bit more edgy and I said what if she just has like a little tattoo or something really discreet, you know, that's just a bit edgy, just to show that she was a bit of a rebel when mm. she was younger and, and just have her hair a bit more like this. And she was like, I love that idea. And I was just like, God, I really feel like I'm taking control. So I would challenge you and say that, that what's happening is that everybody around you creatively is benefiting from you just speaking up a little bit more yeah, about what you know yeah. having the courage of your convictions because you've been around for a while you're highly accomplished and people see that they can benefit from your your wisdom and, yeah. and you would never ever deliver it in an aggressive way we all get too scared no. don't we? To, we we worry we're too yeah. much and I've always really admired other actors who I worked with an actor in years ago he played my husband and he, I thought he was fascinating. We, we turned up on set one day and he had like these tattoos and I was like, oh, are they yours? He was like, no, no, it's for the character. And I was like, my God, he's given this like huge amount of thought. He was like, yeah, I really want... And he had like these little bits of highlights in his hair. I mean, he'd really... And again, it wasn't massive. Part. He was like, no, I see him like this. And I was like, that's so impressive that mm. you've... And um, we had to get the train back from London and he said, I see him as this sort of typical Manchester bloke, you know, with these sort of pointy shoes and these sort of highlights. And t And as we were getting on the train, he went, oh, there, there, that's who I'm playing like this. And there was this guy You've and I was like, I totally see who you mean now. Yeah. And I just thought, actually, what fun to play, play around with that and just do something a bit different. Maybe, okay, so. keep having fun. You're an amazing, you're an inspiration. And I love that you're stepping up to the plate for us and you're you're being a source of inspiration for other people where can we find out information about the era so era 5050 they have a website called equal representation for actresses and it's, mm. it's about changing the film industry and making women more relevant and bringing them into the foreground in terms of their stories so in terms of writers in terms of directors so what can we see you on next uh, so shortly it will be Lucky Man on Sky. I'm not sure when that comes out. I think it'll be the spring. On Radio 4, I've just done a series called The Unforgiven, which is five parts. And 
then I'm just about to start shooting an ITV drama called Dark Heart, so that won't be out probably till the autumn, I don't think. So that means I'm not going to see you at drop-off for a while? No, I'll be around. <laughs> Thank you, Claire. You're amazing. Thank you.